Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Psalms. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Psalm 139, 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I'd like to call the kids forward this morning. This morning I'm going to tell you a story from the Bible. In the book of Acts, chapters 4 and 5, we learn that the Christians in Jerusalem cared about each other very much. Whenever anyone had problems or needs, the others would always find a way to help. They often even sold things that they owned in order to help. And We read about a man whose name was Barnabas, who sold a field that he owned and gave the money to the church to be used to help people who had problems. There was also a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they sold some land too. They didn't really want to help anyone, though. They just wanted people to talk about how nice they were. It's sad, but true. People often do nice things, not because they are nice, but because they like attention. And they like to hear people talk about how good they are. Now, when Ananias and Sapphira sold their land, they decided that they weren't going to give all the money that they made from the sale to the church. That was okay, because it was their land, it was their money. No one, was, no one was making them do this. But they decided that when they gave the money, they would pretend that they were giving all the money that they had made from selling their field. Now, God made Peter understand this, know this, that it wasn't true. And he told Ananias that he was lying about the money. Peter told him that, as I just said, the land is his The money was his. He could do anything he wanted to do with it. He didn't have to give all the money to the church. He didn't have to give any of the money to the church. But he shouldn't have lied about it, saying that this was all the money. And he shouldn't have tried to lie to God about it either. And Peter said to him, you haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. Now when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead right then and there. Some ushers standing in the back came forward and carried him away and buried him. Well, about three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, came in. She didn't know what had happened and how her husband had been caught in a lie. So Peter asked her, this money that that you're giving to the church, is that all the money you made from selling your field? You see, he was trying to give her an opportunity to tell the truth, to do the right thing. But she lied too. And then Peter told her that she too was lying to God and that her husband had been caught lying to God about this earlier. And when she heard this, she fell down dead too. You see, God knew their hearts. That's the point of this story. He knew that they were lying. No one could have known this because it was a secret between them. Even though Ananias and Sapphira were able to trick other people with their lies, they couldn't trick God. Because he knows all things. 
In our sermon verses that we just read, David says, Oh Lord, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts. You know all my ways. You know all the words I say. God knows everything. Everything that we say, even before we say it. And He knows what we think, even if we don't say it. The catechism that we use with Aiden asks, Does God know all things? And the answer is yes. Nothing can be hidden from God. This is one of the reasons why sin is such a huge problem. We are easily tricked by our own hearts into thinking that if no person saw us do something, then no one knows about it. Mom or dad tells you, uh, no cookies until after dinner. And when no one is in the kitchen, you sneak into the cookie jar or the pantry and take a cookie. No person saw you, but someone did see you. God saw you. Maybe you didn't take the cookie. Maybe in your mind you just thought about it. No person heard your secret thoughts, but God heard them. God knows. Maybe dad has told you to sit down. And maybe even put his hand on your shoulder to press you down into your seat a little bit. So in your body, you're sitting down, but maybe in your heart, you're still standing up. You want to do what you want to do, but dad is stronger, so you can't, you can't do what you want. You're obeying your dad, not because you want to, and God knows this too. He knows all the secrets of our hearts. The sin in that story of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they kept some of the money. The sin was, them, was that they thought they could trick God, that they could lie to him. When we realize that God sees even our thoughts, well, then it's obvious that we're all sinners. Thankfully, Jesus died for our sins, and by his Holy Spirit, he gives us a new heart that desires to live for God. Our whole life as a Christian is a big war. It's a fight between our own sinful hearts and the Holy Spirit who is saving us from our sins. And thankfully, God is stronger than us. And through the death of Jesus for his people, God wins this war. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul and making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we went into the Advent season, we had been looking at the attributes of God. To my satisfaction, at least, we hadn't really covered the subject adequately, so I'd like to pick up this theme some more. This morning we'll be looking at the doctrine of the omniscience of God. The word omniscience comes from two Latin words which mean all and knowledge. Hence, omniscience of God refers to God's possessing of all knowledge. In other words, there's no knowledge to be had that God does not possess. As we approach this subject this morning, we need to pay careful attention to the way the Bible defines our terms. 
A lot of ink has been spilt on doctrinal subjects which have been largely the work of men's imaginations. Since we're thinking about God, our minds, unguided by divine revelation, are simply not safe guides. We need the direction of Scripture, for it is the Word of God, and in it God makes himself known to us. So our outline will be as follows. You see it in the bulletin. Number one, God knows all we think. Number two, God knows all we say. And number three, God knows all we do. Now, one of the first things that occurs to you when you think about the knowledge of God is its relation to the future. The questions that essentially arise are, what is the future and how does God possess knowledge of it? When we go to Scripture, Scripture tells us that God knows all the events of the future because He has ordained them all. Think, for instance, of Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, where the apostles proclaim in prayer, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. This clearly teaches that all events come to pass as God has ordained them. This means that God knows the future, not because He can look down some mythological corridor of time, but because He has ordained everything. His knowledge of the future is not unlike an author knowing how his book will end. He knows it because he wrote the story. History is his story. God is the author. Now, if you're perceptive, you'll also quickly see the relationship between God's knowledge of the future and the question of individual men's salvation. Of course, we just answered that question. God knows the future because he has ordained it. This means that he has unchangeably ordained the eternal destiny of all men. If the destiny of any man could be changed, then God's knowledge of the future would be mistaken. And this cannot be. You know, ever since the fall, men have been unwilling to bow the knee to God's sovereign right to rule over his creatures. But since it's obvious blasphemy to say that God isn't powerful enough to see his plans through, the attacks against God's sovereignty over salvation are usually leveled against his knowledge in a variety of ways. Generally, though, all of these attacks center on the false notion that moral responsibility and divine sovereignty are incompatible with each other. Now, all of that introductory material sets us up now to look at our text. Our text declares, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You understand my thought afar off. This is our first point. God knows all we think. You know, once the Reformation got into full swing, the Roman Church launched a movement, kind of a damage control movement from their perspective, known as the Counter-Reformation. The leaders of this movement were the Jesuits, and one of the main Jesuit thinkers was a Spaniard named Luis de Molina. Molina developed a theory called middle knowledge in order to pay lip service to the Bible's doctrine of God's omniscience, while simultaneously denying the, the equally biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty over men's acts. I won't bore you with a bunch of philosophy, but I will tell you that the imagined boringness of philosophy doesn't stop it from influencing cultures, even the very cultures that think philosophy is stupid or egg-headed. Anyway, 
Molina argued that somewhere between, you know, in the middle of God's sovereignty on the one hand and men's freedom on the other hand, there exists in God a knowledge of all potential realities, all the what-ifs, all the possible worlds, as they would put it. And in this middle knowledge, there exists a way to say that God is sovereign and all-knowing, but that men are free to act in a way not ordained by God. In Molina's twisted and, and wicked mind, he was affirming God's knowledge while simultaneously denying the sovereignty that God's knowledge necessarily implies. Molina says that God wants men to be absolutely free in the sense of being completely self-determining, something the Bible plainly denies. God also wants to be sovereign and wise, but probably not as much as he wants, to be, wants men to be free, though. So in his wisdom, he has looked at all the possible worlds in which men could be free and God could still retain his knowledge and power, and this world must be the one where men aren't controlled by God's decree, but God is still sovereign and still knows all things. In Molina's theory, all of these what-ifs open the door to possibilities of things not being ordained by God directly, while God still retains his knowledge of them. Now, this, of course, is all sheer nonsense. There is no other motivation for developing this theory than the desire to strip God of his power as creator. No one would come to the Bible and be led to this theory. The only way you get here is if you have an axe to grind against God's sovereignty and its relation to his knowledge. You'll see that our text says that God knows our thoughts from afar. The point there is the effortlessness of God's knowledge. He doesn't have to zone out the whole world and zero in on you in order to figure out what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking without any effort. I suppose that's simultaneously comforting and frightening, isn't it? I think I'm prepared to say that most of us don't consider the content of a good 95% of what we think. I mean, how often throughout the day do you actually analyze the contents of your mind? The fact that that sounds crazy probably proves the point. And I'm not even particularly talking about all the obscene and dirty things that fill people's minds. How about all the pointless obsession over inconsequential things? How about all the fretting and worrying over what-ifs? What about all the vindictive fantasizing about revenge or malicious daydreaming about another's misfortune? And yes, what about all the obscene and immoral things that flit around in people's minds? The truth is, only God knows our minds. Scripture says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then the very next verse answers the question. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. The New Testament is replete with passages that tell us that Jesus knows what men think. We read earlier, John 2.25, that says that Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the flip side of this, of course, <clears throat> is what we don't think about. God knows what doesn't enter our minds, but should. What we don't devote mental energy to, but we should. William G.T. Shedd wrote, 
No higher dishonor can be done to any being than to forget and ignore him. In common life, if a man wishes to express the highest degree of contempt for a fellow being, he says, I never think of him. But this is the habitual and common attitude of man's mind toward the everlasting God. How few make him real to their minds by meditating upon his being and attributes. Can you not recall some day in which you did not once think of your creator and judge, in which therefore you wholly ignored his existence, in which to all intents and purposes he was a non-entity? So far as you could do it, you, on that day, annihilated the deity. Samuel Stanhope Smith observed, There is in the human heart a strange perversity and disposition to forget God our Maker. Which, if it were not so common, not to say universal, would be almost incredible. The richest mercies of divine providence, which at the moment, perhaps, have awakened all the powers of gratitude, soon escape from the remembrance of men, and the most awful displays of the majesty and justice of God when they are past, speedily cease to leave behind them any traces of those deep impressions which once appeared as if they could never be effaced. How many ways has God answered your prayers, met your needs, preserved you and your family from danger, guided you through great difficulties, and yet you hardly even think of him in his goodness. In fact, when a new difficulty arises, you begin fretting and fearing and wheeling and dealing and conniving and plotting as if God is completely unaware of your case or as if he doesn't even exist at all. Next, our text says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Our second point is that God knows all we say. This is something that's obvious, but I think the obviousness makes it easy to forget. Sort of the forest for the trees thing. You know, to say that God knows all my thoughts, that's pretty probing and convicting. Because our thoughts are done within the privacy of our own consciousness. The fact that I don't say it is what makes it secret. But to say that God knows all that we speak, I think, is no less probing or convicting, mostly because of the carelessness about how we talk. How often have you justified careless speech with the words, I didn't mean anything by it? There's probably not a married couple alive who hasn't uttered those words. And of course, the natural follow-up is, yeah, well, then what did you mean? The presupposes that we all say things with intentions that differ from the meaning carried by the words we use. Not to mention the times we impute meaning to people's words that they didn't intend. You know, there's an interesting case in Leviticus 5 where a person has rashly sworn to do something which later they realize is impossible. And in this passage, God draws two very sharp lines. On the one hand, the person who swore the oath is morally bound to do the thing even though it can't be done. And so the person acquires moral guilt for having sworn an oath that goes unfulfilled. On the other hand, the person who swore also acquires moral guilt when they fail to fulfill the oath even if what was sworn was prohibited. In other words, God holds men accountable for their words, even if what they say they'll do is not allowed. 
And then in Matthew 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees, How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Notice that Jesus is not merely condemning evil speaking. He's condemning the speaking of good when it proceeds from an evil heart. God hates evil speaking, whether it be lies, profanity, blasphemy, lewd language, or false doctrine. But God also hates when men speak things that, while technically true, come from hearts that hate the truth. The world is full of people who claim to believe in the existence of God. People that claim to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior. There are people who profess to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. All these professions are actual truth. God does exist. Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior. The Bible is the very Word of God. Nevertheless, countless men and women who have claimed to believe these things will find themselves in the lake of fire because their lives have belied their professions. Many have claimed to be members of Christ's church and to believe in His Word. And yet throughout their entire adult lives, you can count on one hand the times they've darkened the doors of a church and listened to the preaching of His Word. Many have claimed to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it gives God's verdict about what we are to believe and what we are to do. And yet every time the world's mouthpieces contradict what the Bible says about family, work, sex, politics, money, and science. They'll side with the world and defend their treason with some nonsense about the church not being relevant or being behind the times. Many have claimed to believe that Jesus is the only Savior, and yet they constantly drone on and on and on about how I'm a good person, demonstrating that they're relying on their own righteousness for salvation. They may honor Christ with their mouths, but they deny Him with their lives. As our Heidelberg Catechism question 30 puts it, one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find in Him all things necessary to their salvation. To profess with your mouth that Jesus is your Savior while relying on your own good works to get you into heaven, is to speak words for which God will judge you. Let the Arminians bleed out their eyeballs if they want to. This is still true. Many have claimed to believe that God is holy, and yet they have slandered His name and impugned His character with profane swearing. I challenge you to an experiment. The next time you're traveling anywhere, listen carefully to the random conversations around you. If I were a betting man, I'd put everything I own on the odds that the first person whose name you'll hear disrespected, the first one you'll hear demeaned, the first person you'll hear insulted and dishonored will be God. Men may hate their wives, their neighbors, their mayor, their governor, their president, but the name they'll damn before anyone else's will be the holy name of God. I don't think you need to try that experiment to know that it's true. Finally, our text says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This is our third point. God knows all that we do. Now, at first blush, you may be inclined to say, duh, but we're looking at something deeper than just the surface observation that when you're walking down the street, God knows that you're walking down the street. You'll notice that our, path, our passage is referring to the, the whole course of our lives. In other words, God knows not only the individual acts that we do, but He also knows the intentions of these acts, both in the short term and in the long term. He knows what these acts tend toward and what our ultimate intentions are as we do them. David says, you comprehend my path. Comprehension is certainly more than knowledge, but it isn't less. God knows our path and He understands it. He knows every single detail of it. And He knows every single detail of our thoughts, our intentions, and our motives as we act. What about the connection between our thoughts and our acts? Let's probe that for a second. For an act to be acceptable to God, it must be lawful in itself. And it must be done from right motive. I mean, if the thing is wrong, fornication, murder, adultery, theft, blasphemy, no amount of motive can make that right. On the other hand, the thing can be right, but it can still be done in wickedness when it's done out of a sinful motive. The theologian Robert Dabney gives us a brilliant illustration of this. He imagines a good Christian man met in public by a beggar who asks for a few bucks. And with deliberate consideration, the Christian gives the man some help. And Dabney points out that there were simultaneously in the Christian's consciousness several things. There was the instinctive rush of animal sympathy, which is morally neutral. There may have been a movement of the love of God, which is morally good. There may have been memories of times when he was in need and was helped by others. Morally neutral, certainly not bad though. There may have been a desire for Christ's glory in in the help of of a person in need, which is morally good. There may have been pleasure in thoughts of himself as some great humanitarian, morally evil at the very least. He could have had selfish tinges of regret at the thought of what he was giving up, you know, what he intended to, to do with that money, which is morally evil. And of course, there was the, the, the decision about whether or not this was the right thing to do under the circumstances. Now, let's grant the judgment of charity and assume that the better impulses prevailed and the Christian man helped the poor beggar from honorable motives. His act was generally speaking, a good act. But the fact is, there shouldn't have been any selfish reluctance. There shouldn't have been any lust for recognition. It was a moral defect in this act that some sinful motives were felt and had to be suppressed. The fact that such things surface in the Christian's mind, even momentarily, render the act of a mixed moral character. Think of your own actions, and I think you'll see that Even in the noblest things that you do, there will be multiple motives in your mind all competing for supremacy. And when you actually carry through with the act, there will never be one simple, unmixed motive behind it. There will always be many. And these many motives will be of differing moral character. The defect in a good act, a generally good act, can actually live long after the act is done and then later render it sinful. 
I mean, what if you begin to fantasize about praise and accolades for your generosity? You spend many a careless moment daydreaming about people talking behind your back about how kind and generous you are. And you see yourself up on some platform saying, it's quite humbling to receive this award. When I did the deed, I had no intention that anyone would, would see it. I didn't know that anyone knew about it. I, I'm deeply humbled to receive this award. Da, 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 da. And you can laugh, but we all know that's far too common. And so I think you can see, though, that what could have been generally good at the time can later achieve a different moral status. What could have been good when it was done can later become rank sin. I can obey the commandment to not commit adultery, but if I lust in my heart, my fidelity to my wife is no more pure in God's eyes than if I had lived as an open womanizer. Most men of the world in Christian countries do many things which are very proper, but not from love to God. No man who has not been born again ever does anything with holy motives. So when we say that God knows all our acts, that's what we're talking about. Now, one last thought before we conclude. Acts done in secret are known by God. No one ultimately gets away with murder. A crime may go unsolved in this lifetime, but no crime goes unpunished by God. Ultimate justice is real, and it's real because of God's omniscience. You can commit your sins in the deepest, darkest, loneliest corners of the universe, but God is there, and He sees it. You know, the very next verse after our sermon text reads... Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? And verse 12 reads, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know, earlier we noted that God knows all future events because He has ordained them all. This is certainly what our passage has in view. I just look at how the passage ends. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. This is a very strong assertion of God's sovereign ordaining of all things. David openly acknowledges that God knows all his thoughts, his words, and his deeds. But David goes farther, much farther. He says that God hedges him in behind and before. It's not just that God knows what David will do, but that it is logically impossible in the light of God's knowledge for David to do anything that God has not ordained. He is hedged in behind and before by the sovereign decree decree of God. I want you to notice also what David's response to this is. David's response is to worship God for his knowledge. David doesn't object that this is unfair or that it minimizes his personal responsibility for his actions. No, he worships God as the great and wise God that he is. David acknowledges that he could never grasp such knowledge. This and this alone is the response of a true believer. Only an unbeliever objects about how he is reined in by God's knowledge and power. Only an unbeliever sets more stock in his own liberty than in God's. Only an unbeliever seeks for an excuse for his sin in God's sovereign ordaining of all things. And only a God-hating unbeliever will seek for a way to blame God for his own wretched love of sin. Now, in our examination of what the Scripture has to say about the extent of God's knowledge, several things have become clear. 
First, God is a God of infinite knowledge. There is nothing that he is not aware of. God is not like human beings in his knowledge. He, does, he cannot learn anything. He doesn't need to be taught. And therefore, he doesn't make any mistakes. And for that reason, he is able to righteously judge the world because he knows the thoughts as well as the deeds. He knows everything that will happen because he has ordained it so. There is great security for the believer in the omniscience of God. Those who have put their trust in him are comforted by the thought of God's omniscience. If you're not comforted by the thought of God's omniscience, you should ask yourself, why? Why does God's knowledge bother you so much? Why do you fear or hate the fact that God knows all things? I suspect that that question answers itself. 